0: Well, good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, Matthew 16. We'll get to that in a minute. Here's a question. How many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, I'm going to run through the list. Presbyterians, none. Lights will go on and off at predestined times. Catholics, none. Candles only. Baptists, at least fifteen. One to change the light bulb and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad. <laughs> Episcopalians, three. One to call the electrician, one to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better the old one was. <laughs> Charismatics, only one. Hands already in the air. Pentecostals, ten. One to change the bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. Unitarians, we choose not to make a statement either in favor of or against the need of a light bulb. However, if in your own journey you found that light bulbs work for you, that's fine. You're invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your light bulb for next Sunday's service in which we will explore a number of light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long-life, tinted, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. Methodists, Undetermined, whether your light bulb is bright or dull or completely out, you are loved. You can be a light bulb, turnip bulb, or tulip bulb. Church-wide lighting service is planned for Sunday. Bring bulb of your choice and a covered dish. Nazarene, six. One woman to replace the light bulb while five men review the church lighting policy. Lutherans, None. Lutherans don't believe in change. (laughs) Amish, what's a light bulb? (laughs) Now that I've officially offended everyone, turn to Matthew chapter 16, where we're going to look at some verses that Jesus speaks to us about his church. We are a blended family. This morning, we all come from different backgrounds, different traditions. Uh, I grew up Roman Catholic. I met the Lord when I was 18 years of age. My wife grew up agnostic. Some have grown up atheistic. Others have grown up with all of the smattering of these things that I mentioned in that little illustration. And so we come with different baggage and different ideas of what church ought to be. Um, we are, as you can see on the sides, doing a new series called Upon This Rock, and it's a, a series of expositional, it's not a topical series, it's a, it's a thematic, and we're going to do a series of expositional teachings on the church, on the theme of the church throughout the New Testament. Um, I noticed that people shop for churches, and there are a lot to choose from. In the landscape of America and in our county, uh, there are uh, some loud ones, some quiet ones, some old ones, some young ones, some foreign, uh, a fun ones, some boring ones. Uh, there are some long services that last uh, what some would consider an inordinate amount of time. Uh, others are very short services, uh, even with sermonettes. Um, rather than expositional teachings. But there's a lot of different things to choose from. And it always brings up the the, uh, the fundamental question, what do I want in a church? What am I looking for in an assembly to meet with? But we've left something out. And that is the founder and the director, the one whose idea it was to begin with, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His church after all, as we'll see in our text. Let's then look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades as it's recorded here, shall not prevail against it. I want to ask you a question. Actually, I want you to ask yourself this question, and you can answer it in your own mind. If everyone in church were just like you, what kind of church would it be? That's a good way to start. If everybody in my church was just like I am, what kind of a church would it be? I've been here now about nine months, and uh, I would say that pretty much uh, dust has settled and uh, we're ready to move on and we're ready to build. And so I think it's a good time to look at, from a New Testament perspective, what is church all about? Why do we do this, gathering together, scheduling meetings, uh, programs, etc.? So in understanding that, and by the way, the name of this message today is How to Go to Church and Survive. How to go to church and survive. And there's four fundamental truths. And by the way, I know a lot of people that go to church and don't survive. They don't make it for a number of reasons. And we'll discuss those over the next several weeks. But this morning, I want to look at four truths given by Jesus about the church that will help us all not only survive, but hopefully thrive. First of all, will you notice its designation He calls it church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. That's the designation. In the New Testament, about 110 times in either the uh, plural or singular, the term church is found. This is the very first time the word comes to us in the scripture. It's the first mention of the word church, which makes it highly significant. Anytime the first Of something is mentioned, you want to look at it very carefully in its context as to what it means. Upon this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. First time ever mentioned. To the modern ear, the word church has some definite connotations. We think that's a religious word. That's a religious thing. It's a Western religious thing. And for some, they would say it's an outdated Western religious thing. You mention the word church to people. Immediately in their mind comes a structure of stone or wood or stucco with steeples and crosses and bells. Other people, they hear the word church and they think of an institution filled with frowning old men wearing black robes and collars. The term church is an interesting one because it has in its origin no spiritual, religious connotations at all. It was a secular word. In fact, it was a governmental word. The idea meant an assembly, an assembly of people. The Greek word ekklesia, ekklesia was a Greek term for an assembly of Greek citizens who met regularly at some public place. As time went on, it came to mean even more than that, a legislative body of Greek citizens who met regularly. You may remember that when Paul the Apostle was in Ephesus, there was an uproar because he was there. He was preaching the gospel and the the city crowded into this huge theater, 25,000 seat theater. And for two hours. They cried out, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. It said, when the assembly left, and the word there is ekklesia, this uh, group of Greek citizens meeting over a common goal. Let's go a little bit deeper. The word church, ekklesia, comes from two words put together, ek which means out or from, out from, and kaleo, which means to call. And you put it together and you come up with the term of what it means, to call out from. So the idea of a church, of this assembly, was people called out from their society that meet for their own common goal, their own common purpose. So we're getting now at the meaning of the designation church, a group of people called out separately from the rest of the community that meet for a common goal. Jesus' use of the term is to me very revealing. It reveals to me, number one, that the followers of Jesus Christ are not meant to be isolated individuals, but an integrated community. Not isolated individuals, but an integrated community. Jesus didn't say, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my monastery. Or you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my private place of meditation where you can find your own personal journey. No, upon this rock, I'm going to build a group, an assembly of people, of called out ones. I know you've heard people say, it's sort of the modern mantra I don't need a church. I'm not into organized religion. Wrong. You do need a church. Every Christian needs church. Every Christian is a part of that called out church. Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. You say, why is it important? Well, listen to this. Solomon in Proverbs 18 writes, a man who isolates himself... "...seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment." You see, fellowshipping together with other Christians prevents you from living selfishly. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desires. So, according to Jesus, the idea of a church meant that we're to follow him as a community, a group, not just a personal, private relationship with Jesus. Jesus. The term one another is found 70 times in the New Testament about our relationship as Christians. We do things with each other. Of course, people ask the question, can I be a Christian without joining a church? Answer, technically yes, because to know Christ, to go to heaven, to put your faith in Christ, you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. That Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. Paul writes in Romans 10, you will be saved. So technically, yes, you can be a Christian without joining a church. But you know what that's like? It's like being a soldier without an army. It's like being a, a sailor without a boat. It's like being a football player without the rest of the football team. It's like being a tuba player without an orchestra. A bee without a hive. You can get by with it, but you won't get by with it very well. And you're prey for temptation and conformity to the world around you. Second thing that it shows me about Jesus' use of the term church is that his followers are supposed to be different from the rest of the culture. If the term ecclesia means a group of called out people that assemble together over a common goal, it shows me That we are not to be like the world, but we're to be different from the world. This is what I mean. We are not just a group that meets and sings and reads the same stuff. We are a holy assembly. I'll be even more plain. We're not to copy the world We're not trying to go out there and try to prove to the world, hey, we're as cool as you are. We're as hep as you are. We can do what you do. We're just called a Christian group. We're to be a different group of people from the world. And what makes us different? We love Jesus supremely. That's what makes us different. How often do we have to assemble? I've had people ask me, well, Skip, how often do I have to go to church? I say, wrong question." It's not a matter of how often do I have to, how often do you want to? That's a good indication of who you are. Oh, I have to. I I grew up with the obligation. They used to tell us, it's your Sunday obligation. So I looked at God as an obligation. However, when my wife Lenya came to know Christ, you couldn't keep her away from church. She went literally every night there was a service. I heard about a couple. They got up to go to church in the morning. You may have heard the same story. It's quite old. She was ready, dressed, almost out the door. Her husband was turning over in bed. She said, honey, get up. It's time to go to church. He goes, I'm not going to church today. She goes, you're not going to church? How come? He goes, well, I've got three reasons. Number one, the people in that church are cold and unloving. Number two... Nobody likes me there. And number three, I don't feel like it. She said, well, let me give you three good reasons why you should go to church. Number one, the people in this church are warm and friendly. They're loving. Number two, I can think of a few people who like you. And number three, you're the pastor. (laughs) So get up and go to church. I've been there. (laughs) Listen to what the author of Hebrews writes. I mentioned the text to you in Hebrews 10.25. I'm going to tell you the whole verse. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting or encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Why is that? Why is it the manner of some to look at the assembly as something uh, as a duty or irregular. Why is it the manner of some that, okay, it's Christmas, I'll go, or or it's Easter, I'll go, or it's a wedding, so I guess I'll go to church. Why is that the manner of some? Why is it that with some, you have to drag them to church? Why is it with others, you have to drag them out of church because they love it so much? There are a number of reasons. I'll give you one. I'll read it to you from the Scripture, 1 John chapter 3. If we love other Christians... It proves we have passed from death to life. If a person doesn't love them, he is still dead. Let me give it to you this way. The way you treat God's kids tells us a lot about how you treat God. If you love God, God says, you better love my kids, my children. Well, that's its designation. Look closer at verse 17. Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We've noticed its designation, church. Look at its foundation. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, we take a lot of pot shots of Peter. I think there's going to be a long line of preachers in heaven saying, I'm sorry to Peter for all the things we said about him. And yes, he did fail. He was weak. But here, he stands tall. He's the only guy in the group that got an A on the test. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Bingo. Right on, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. But look carefully at this. Upon this rock, what does that refer to? Some people, the tradition I grew up in, said it's Peter. Peter's the rock. Peter's the foundation stone of the church. And the church is built upon Peter's leadership. May I say that would be a very weak church. And I think if Peter were here, he'd say amen. To build any organization, anything on a man even Peter. I know that the word Peter means rock, but it's not the kind of rock that you think. Don't think of this big, massive boulder. Think of a nugget, a pebble. Uh, Not, you know, rocky Balboa. Uh, Think of pebbles from Flintstone. That's Peter. It's not like Jesus said... Peter, you are so incredible an individual. I've got to build the future of my organization on you. Yo, thanks, Lord. (laughs) Like Rocky Balboa would say. That's not it at all. I'm going to paint the picture for you, and I think you'll get the idea. 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is where Jesus hung out with his disciples for the most part. 25 miles north was a lush plain known as... uh, Caesarea Philippi. It was a city built on a plain at the foot of the tallest mountain in the Middle East, Mount Hermon. It's 10,000 feet high. Caesarea Philippi was the headwaters of the Jordan River. If you go there, we'll show you where the Jordan River comes out of a huge, massive rock. That's where Jesus took them to. That's where the backdrop of this story is. Caesarea Philippi was a place then where that which watered the entire land of Israel came forth out of the rock. It was the living water, they called it. It was also a place of contrast. Fourteen pagan temples adorned Caesarea Philippi. Baal was worshipped there at one time. It was said by the Greeks in their mythology that the Greek god Panaeus, uh, Pan, was born there. Um, Herod the Great built a temple to Caesar Augustus at that place. It was a place of worship. And in that backdrop of Caesarea Philippi, sacred to the Jews and sacred to the Greeks, sacred to the Romans, sacred to other pagans, Jesus asked him this question. And then when Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, amen, flesh and blood, hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, you are Peter. And upon this rock... I will build my church. Now, I mentioned that the term Peter means rock, but it means nugget, small stone. In the, the original language, this is a play on words. If you could listen to it in the original, you'd get it. It says, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. Peter, you're a pebble. And upon this massive confession that you just said, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's what I'm going to build my church on. Listen, the church isn't built on Peter Pebbles, but on Mount Messiah. It's built on Jesus Christ. No other foundation, Peter said, 1 Corinthians 3, no other foundation can any man lay than what has already been laid, and that is Jesus Christ. So, you want to survive, church? Get your eyes off people, whether it's Peter or a pastor or a board, and get your eyes on Jesus Christ. Now, there's something even more fundamental than that, because the issue isn't just surviving church, but it's being able to thrive in church. So here's my question to you. Are you just coming to church? What do you mean just coming to church? It takes a lot of effort to come to church. Are you just coming to church or have you come to Christ? Are you resting on the rock, the solid rock foundation that is Jesus Christ? Now, Jesus builds his church by the truth about himself. Upon this rock, this confession that I am the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God, I will build my church. So, what I'm saying is you can be... um, uh, baptized in a church, you can be um, uh, married in a church, you can sing at a church, but if you can't from your heart confess that Jesus is Lord, your Lord, you're not a part of it. You just go to it. You just attend it. You're resting on the membership of it, but not the rock, the relationship with Christ. Paul said, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. He said those words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. Listen to it in the New Living Translation. They will act as if they're religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. So, what is a church? How do you survive it? By recognizing what it is and what it's built on. It's a group of people called out from the world to be different. We're we're to be integrated with each other. And what ties us together is the common confession that Jesus Christ is our personal Lord and our rock. There's something else here, a third truth. Notice its possession. It's possession. We've noticed its designation. It's the church. Its foundation. It's built on the rock, not Peter, but Christ. But notice now its possession. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I love this. I love this. Whose church is it? His. No, it's my you know We often say, I'm going to come to my church. Or let's go over to Skip's church. Or come to our church. It's his. It's his. That means that Jesus Christ doesn't have to clear his decisions with Rome, with London, with Minneapolis, with Costa Mesa, with any other place other than himself, it's his church. He's the founder, he's the director. You see, he's the one that thought about it, thought it up. In the Old Testament, the church isn't revealed, Paul said. It was a mystery kept, but then revealed in the New Testament. This is God's plan all along, Paul says. This is the revealed mystery. It's no longer a mystery. It's open. So he's thought of it. Number two, he paid for it. That's why it's his. He bought it with his own blood. That's why Paul approached the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and he said, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Well, if he, if he bought it, he redeemed us, then it's his church. Dr. James Kennedy writes these words. Most people think the church is a drama in which the minister is the chief actor, God is the prompter, and the laity is the critic. What is actually the case is that the congregation is the chief actor, the minister is the prompter, and God is the critic. So it's his, what does he want out of it, out of me? Every pastor of every church and every church board should remember the church belongs to him. It take a load off us all. And every Christian in every church should remember he owns the church. Because what it means to us personally when we gather in meetings like this, that all of the people sitting next to you, if they're believers, God owns them too. Those are blood-bought believers that you're around. So we ought to think twice about criticizing each other or criticizing other churches down the road or down the block or across town because they're bought by Jesus. First Thessalonians opens with these words, From Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church in Thessalonians... Who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we belong to Him, whether we sit in these chairs or in other chairs if we have a relationship with God. So we have to be very careful how we talk about God's church. Think of what it cost Jesus to get Him. Fourth and finally, look back at our text. Verse 18. You are Peter. You're a pebble. And on this rock, this massive confession that I am the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We've seen its designation, it's the church. We've seen its foundation, it's on a rock. We've seen its possession, it's not ours, it's his. Finally, it's preservation. How long will it last? Is the church in danger of dying out? Are we in in trouble? Do we need to get marketers to help us? Does God's work need rescuing? Throughout history, people have stood up and mocked the church. 1776, David Hume, the skeptic, said, I can see the twilight of Christianity. I can see the twilight of Christianity. 1776, he said that. Poor guy couldn't tell the difference between a sunset and a sunrise. It was just getting started. In this country. Voltaire, the French infidel, said, within a hundred years, my works will silence Christianity and I will overturn the writings of the apostles. Within 50 years, the United Bible Society was using his home to distribute Bibles in Europe after his death. Isn't that great? You see... The gates of hell will not prevail against the work, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, at the same time, I will say, there is room for concern. Every year in Europe, about 82 churches close. And the property is either made into public buildings, uh, Islamic mosques, like in Bradford, England. Furniture is sold. Uh, Baptisteries are used for bird baths. A lot of people think it's a cool thing to have a church baptistry in the front yard as a bird bath, Or they'll sell pews and it's ancient antique furniture. So uh, it's it's very popular. So churches are closing down. At the same time, around the world, there are fires of revival happening in South America. In China, in the last three years, 37,000 new churches in one province were planted. 37,000 new churches in one province of China in the last three years have been planted. By the way, you know what the common denominator to all this church growth is? It's not marketing. It's persecution. You persecute a group of people, that church will grow. Now, I'm going to say something very bold, something nobody in this room wants to hear. But you want to pray for growth? Pray for a little persecution. Because it will separate the chaff from the wheat really quick. And the strong will emerge and the church will be built. Um... I'm getting into trouble, perhaps, so I'm going I'm to close off uh, the message this morning. <laughs> the gates of hell. Jesus was saying, in other words, you could open up the doors of hell and unleash every vile demon and thing that could come upon the church, be it persecution, be it death, be it burning their buildings down. And it's not going away. I'm going to do my work. Think about it. When Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, uh, you could have looked at that event and said, It's over. Christianity is over. Their founder's dying. (laughs) It was that event that marked the beginning. Because in a few days, he's back. And he's been moving ever since. I remember the Jesus movement, and I know some of you do as well. Oops, I better stay here. Um, Jesus is still moving. And I'm praying for a new movement, a a rekindling, a revival. I want to see another movement of God. And, And remember, as we close, the congregation is the chief actor, the minister is the prompter, and God is the critic. So, Lord, are we what you want us to be? To be.